remain standing with me out of respect for the word and turn to 1 Corinthians 11. Yes, I did say 1 Corinthians. I hope you've been praying for me that I would understand God's word so that I could uh, preach the truth to you this morning. We've studied this passage out and uh, I trust it will be a blessing to us as we hear from God and his word this morning. 1 Corinthians 11, uh, beginning with verse 1. Be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. I praise you because you remember me and everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of the woman and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. Where a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it's disgraceful for her woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. May God add his rich blessing to the reading of his word. Let's ask for his help to understand. Father in heaven, who at the baptism of Jesus in the river Jordan proclaimed him your beloved son and anointed him with the Holy Spirit, grant that all who are baptized into his name may keep the covenant they have made and boldly confess him as Lord and Savior, who with the Holy Spirit lives and reigns one God in glory everlasting. Amen? You may be seated. Well, it can be just a little bit intimidating uh, reading the comments that some scholars make about the difficulty of this passage, especially before you do what I'm about to do, which is to preach on it. One commentator, just to give you a taste of how people gauge the difficulty of this passage, said this. We are dealing with a scripture passage whose meaning, although clear to its first readers, is no longer obvious to us. Now, if that doesn't discourage you at the outset, that the passage is no longer obvious to the church today, so we can't recover the meaning of the passage, I'm sure that we can understand the difficulty of this passage. Uh, I've been spending time over the past month thinking, studying, consulting with others, attempting to understand its meaning so I can accurately proclaim it to you this morning. And uh, I can honestly say that the interpretation I'm about to give you I haven't read anywhere, which makes me even more nervous. Uh, But I I plead with you in advance that you would give a fair hearing to the interpretation of God's Word this morning, and that you would carefully weigh Scripture against Scripture. And I'm just going to say in advance here, before we dig into this passage, this is going to be a teaching message. Uh, This is not a fire and brimstone kind of preaching passage. This is one that needs to be uh, carefully dissected. So let's approach that passage, this passage this morning from that perspective, to understand uh, what God is saying to us here about this business of coverings for our head in worship. I want us to begin, first of all, looking at the principle of the passage. And that's stated in verse 3. But before we dig into that principle, let's just sort of notice where we are in the flow of the book of Corinthians. 
you can see that indicated in the contrast between verse 1 and verse 2. Paul says, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. And then he switches in verse 2 to a new topic. He says, now I praise you because you remember me in everything. Uh, What's going on here is the Apostle Paul, in verse 1 of our chapter, is wrapping up this very lengthy discussion about meat sacrifice to idols. And that's been some time ago since we looked at all that business, but I think we can basically remember what the Apostle Paul said, is that sometimes we sacrifice our privileges for the conscience of other people. And he showed how he uh, went without certain privileges and benefits in his own life and how he disciplined himself to fight his urges and temptations so that he could be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what he's saying there when he says, Be imitators of me just as I am of Christ. Be willing to sacrifice. Be willing to give up things in your own life that are not essential to you in order that you may be a blessing to others. But now as we come into verse 2, the Apostle Paul switches the topic up and he says to the Corinthians, I praise you. And that's very interesting because often in this letter we found the Apostle Paul is not praising the Corinthians. He is often rather uh, rebuking them. But he praises them in this particular respect. He says, I praise you. You're holding fast to the traditions that I delivered to you. And that word traditions, and we'll have to, we'll have to defend this at some other time when we get to 1 Corinthians 15, the Lord willing, several years from now. Uh, traditions basically means apostolic revelation about doctrine. And what the Apostle is saying, I commend you, Corinthians, uh, because you are maintaining and, and firmly holding to the apostolic doctrine. And as you think about that, that seems fair. It seems that that is the case with the Corinthians. The Apostle, how, uh, after all, is not correcting their understandings about the doctrine of the Trinity. They're not denying essential truths about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and their unity and their relation to one another. He is not correcting them about doctrines of Christology. He is not correcting them about the Gospel. Really, the problem that the Corinthians have is that they have a a really rough time applying truth to life. The problem is their practice. Paul has corrected a number of their practices. And now, as we get into 1 Corinthians 11 and all the way into chapter 14, he has to correct some problems they have in their worship. And that's what we need to see here as we begin to approach the principle. The principle is related to worship. This entire section from verse 3 in chapter 11 all the way through the end of chapter 14 is about the worship, the public worship of the Corinthian church. And Paul needs to make a number of corrections to what they're doing. But we know it's about worship, and you know why. It's because if you just look down in your passage to verse 17, you can see here that Paul accents that. He says, in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. The coming together is the public gathering of God's people for worship. This passage here is connected to what he's going to later say about worship as well. All the way into chapter 14, you can see that word come together is repeated in chapter 14, where Paul makes reference to practices of the Corinthians when they come together. Uh, For instance, in verse 26, he says, uh, when you assemble, it's the same verb that's used in verse 17 there in chapter 11, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation, says, let all things be done for edification. And then if you drop down to verse 40, you see the Apostle's final concluding admonition about worship. He says, let all things be done properly and in an orderly manner. So the very first point that I want to make this morning is that this passage is about public worship. Now, what's the principle involved? If you turn back to chapter 11 and verse 3, you can see this enormous theological and social principle. Verse 3, I want you to understand... Christ is the head of every man, the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. There is your principle. And head here has to be taken metaphorically. Head is not referring to your anatomy. It makes no sense in this passage to say that Christ is your physical head. Nor does it make any sense uh, if we read it saying the man is the head of the wife, as if... 
all male heads happen to be female, uh, planted on female bodies. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, uh, he's using head here in the sense of authority. He says, Christ is in authority over every man. And what that basically means is, I believe he's talking very narrowly about males, about men. He's saying, Christ is the head over them. The next line of authority, he says, man is the head of a woman. And you could take that either way. You could say man, or this could be interpreted, husband and wife relationship. Although it does seem it's more generic. It does seem that Paul is saying that there's some authority structure, some sense of hierarchy within the creational ordering. Man is the head of woman. And then finally he says, God is the head of Christ. So what you have here in this big principle is that the Apostle Paul is spelling out how God has constructed our social experience. Of course, that all happened at creation. We're going to see that as we uh, drop down into verse 8 and 9. That the Apostle is appealing to the creation account in Genesis chapter 2 for uh, his information here on this principle of hierarchy and subordination. But what Paul is saying is that God has implanted, he has placed within the very uh, nature of creation this social structure. And that social structure of hierarchy and subordination is to be evident in the family. And second of all, it is to be evident in the church. And thirdly, it is specifically to be evident in worship. Now, that's the principle you have to hang on to so that you can understand now the policy. But what Paul is going to do here is he is going to say that that large principle of subordination and hierarchy and the arrangement, the divine arrangement of our social experience, that principle has to be worked out in the life of the church, particularly in its worship, as it pertains to a couple of issues. That has to be preserved. So let's look at the policy. And this is obviously what everybody is waiting for breathlessly. How are we going to deal with this passage of coverings? Let's look at the activities, first of all. The activities. Verse 4 and verse 5 are the same. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. There's your, uh, there are the activities, prophesying and praying. We have to understand what Paul means by both terms. Prophecy, what is it? Prophecy is the speaking under divine inspiration to God's people. It is speaking under divine inspiration to God's people. It is delivering a message from God to men. It is declaring the mysteries of God for the edification of the saints. It is a spiritual gift administered by the Holy Spirit to God's people under the New Covenant. Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, verse 28. God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. That is obviously a prophecy of the New Covenant situation, and what God is saying is that He will pour out this they get rather indiscriminately here upon men and women. Now, as you turn to the New Testament, you see the fulfillment of that, for instance, in Acts chapter 2. And then you also see that some women indeed in the New Testament is recorded did receive the gift of prophecy. We're told that Philip's daughters, he had four of them, were prophetesses. They prophesied. They spoke under divine inspiration to God's people for their edification. Now, if, if we can just use all that as backdrop to understand this passage, I think we're just going to have to assume here that Paul is, is indeed saying that there are some women in Corinth who are prophesying. There are some women in Corinth who have received this gift of prophecy. And that's why the instructions about heaven coverings come in. I'm going to unfold this a little bit more, so let's just wait. The second thing here is prayer. What kind of prayer is the Apostle speaking of? And I think generally when we look at this passage and we hear prayer, it's, it's typical for us to revert to our sort of uh, 
typical categories of prayer. We think of either public prayer or we think of private prayer. When we think of public prayer, we think of people usually in, in, uh, in formal gatherings, somebody getting up and leading the prayer time, at least praying for uh, God's people in a public worship setting or situation. We can think of private prayer where somebody goes privately and speaks to the Lord as an individual. But I don't think that's the prayer that's involved here. Turn with me to chapter 14. And this is going to be sort of the risky step I'm taking in interpreting uh, this passage for you. But uh, I think Paul has a different prayer in view here. Uh, Look at verse 13 and 14. The Apostle, this is in chapter 14. The Apostle of Paul says, Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. Now verse 14. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will pray with the mind. I also sing with the spirit, and I will sing with the mind. Otherwise, if you bless in the spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted man say the amen at your giving thanks, since he does not know what you're saying? This is a... Some of it a perplexing thing here, but what the Apostle Paul is saying is that a part of the uh, revelatory gifts of God to his church were the gifts of tongues, but beyond that, there was some sort of a gift uh, where uh, people were enabled to pray in tongues. And the prayer in tongues was an actual revelation, it was an actual divine, inspired revelation of God to his people. What Paul is saying here, however, is this. Make sure that if you're praying out loud in a tongue, that there is an interpreter. Because if you pray out loud in a tongue, and you don't have an interpreter, there's going to be this ungifted person here who doesn't know when to say amen. He can't follow your prayer. He doesn't understand what you're saying. He's not, uh, he's not understanding the revelation of God to him. And in that case, you won't be edified. And that's what Paul means when he says, my mind is unfruitful. He says, he's saying, my revelation that has come to me through praying in a tongue publicly, out loud, in worship, is not fruitful. It's not beneficial. It doesn't help anyone. Now, I believe it's that praying in the tongues there that Paul is referring to back in chapter 11. When Paul said, every man praying and every man prophesying, he is placing prayer and prophecy on a continuum. He is placing them on the same footing. He is saying they have the same quality. They are the same kind of thing. They are both spiritual gifts given by the Spirit, and they are about disclosing divine revelation to God's people. That's what Paul says. I didn't write it, people of God. Paul did. And he says... This is what must happen now if someone prophesies or prays out loud in the public worship situation. He says, if a woman prays in that way or prophesies in that way, her head must be covered. He says, every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. Now, this is where we have to pause and say, well, what is a head covering? Well, it used to be we could answer this question real easily because it used to be when everybody came to church about 20 years ago, women still wore hats. I don't know if you, many of you remember that, but it used to be that it was common uh, for women to wear some sort of a head covering. And it wasn't because they'd been freshly reading 1 Corinthians 11. It was a cultural thing. But uh, we seem to understand something about the head covering. And I've even run across people who are very convinced that this passage is talking about wearing head coverings in worship still to this day. And it almost seems that almost anything will do. Uh, just, just as long as some portion of the head is covered. A little scarf, a little hat, uh, a little piece of cloth, something. i never forget the time that we were worshiping in some of the church. And uh, at this particular church I, I happened to be when I was in seminary asked to preach there. It turns out that the church believed that women should wear head coverings. And so uh, we show up to church and my... Uh, the ladies immediately came up to my wife and they said, well, would you like something for your head? 
And we said, well, why would you need something for your head? Oh, they began to explain that the head coverings were used. And they were, it's like their, their purses were, were, were just full of scarves. And I said, no, thank you. My wife will not wear a head covering. I don't believe that's the interpretation of the passage. But you see here, it was thought that we understood this. But as you go back and you investigate the historical sources of the time, it's very clear, and from the wording used in the passage, that the head covering here is something like a very large shawl that was wrapped around the head and flowed all the way down across the shoulders, neck, and back. It wasn't a little doily, or a little scarf, or a little hat, or a little piece of cloth. So we sort of legalistically say that we were submitting to God's word. It was something that was very obvious. It covered you up. And you say, well, why in the world would the Apostle Paul say wear a head covering? And the fact of the matter is, as you go back and as you study this matter out in context, in this particular historical period, it's very unclear why he asked, or rather commanded this to be done. It's not clear. The Romans, in their religious practices, had both the men and the women cover their head. The Greeks, in their religious practices, had neither the women or the men cover their head. We are aware of the Jewish practice, which was that Jewish women were not allowed to walk outside of their house even without a very elaborate head covering which basically only enabled them to see out of their eyes. But throughout the rest of the Greco-Roman world, that was not the typical practice. Women could do that, but they didn't always. Now, you've probably heard preachers say this. I know I, I encountered this quite often as I was studying this out, that it was the sign of an immodest woman or a prostitute or an adulterous wife or a stubborn wife that she wouldn't wear her head covering when she's out in public. But there's absolutely no proof of that at all. There's absolutely no proof of that at all. As you go back and you study the artifacts, the pottery, the marble statues... Uh, the cave drawings, I mean, you go down the list, we, uh, we have studied this out very carefully in the academy. And we have come to the conclusion that it was really a matter of choice and it wasn't all that widespread that people wore head coverings. So there's nothing obvious, um, this is my point, there's nothing obvious in the church context, in the religious context, or the cultural context that would demand this. Except for it was sort of, at the time, broadly regarded in the culture as something that would indicate dignity. People would at least admit, they would at least say that. It, it, it sort of showed a decorum or an order. We'll have to come back to that idea. But it seems that Paul seizes on that idea. and He says, look, we have this principle of hierarchy and subordination. And now we have uh, this situation where women are prophesying in public and they are praying in tongues in public. And there has to be something. There has to be something about them that indicates they are not usurping the authority of man. There has to be something in the way they do this that tells the world that we're not overturning the social order. There has to be something in the way they present themselves while they're speaking that even if a casual bystander, if a stranger, if a non-member of the church came into the assembly, there has to be something that someone would say, oh, these people are not fanatics trying to overturn the social structure. That's the principle. That's how Paul applies it here. It's very clear that Paul takes up that idea and he applies it to this particular situation. He says, if they do pray or if they do prophesy, they need to have this covering on so we'll make it clear that they're not trying to overturn God's ordering. What is God's ordering? Well, God's ordering is clear. Go to chapter 14. This is the passage I have to come back to in a minute, but God's ordering is clear. Verse 34 of chapter 14. It says, The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to subject themselves just as the law says. What law? 
Well, it's clear that the law that the Apostle Paul is thinking of is Genesis chapter 2, which is within the law, which is in the first five books of the Pentateuch. And it's very clear he is appealing to the creation ordinances that Adam was created first, then Eve. And that because God created Adam first, God instituted Adam's headship in that case, and male headship and authority that would be reflected in the family and then in the church. And you say, well, how do you know that, Pastor Sotel? Well, I know that because Paul says so in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He says, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. See the policy? She must receive instruction in submissiveness and quietness, and she must not teach. That's what Paul says. In the churches, this is the way it's going to be, he says. That's the policy. Now, what's the principle? Creation. He says, verse 13, For Adam was first created, then Eve. You see, what Paul is doing there, he's also doing it in our passage, you come back to 1 Corinthians 11, he appeals to that creational ordering. In verse 8, where he says, Man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. And indeed, man was not created for woman's sake, but woman for the man's. He is appealing to creational ordering in Genesis 2. So he's saying, Look, we're not going to have this situation where, where, where we give this appearance in our worship services that women are not submitting to that social order that God has made. Which, by the way, was something that was basically adhered to throughout the whole world in its cultures. It was very patriarchal. Paul says if it's going to happen this way, if it's going to happen that the Holy Spirit is sovereignly distributing this gift of prophecy or this gift of praying in tongues to women and that is exercised in a public worship situation and they speak out loud, they're going to have to have a veil on their, they're going to have to have a covering on their head to indicate that they're not attempting to overthrow God's ordering of our social experience. On the other hand, the Apostle Paul says, if a man prays or prophesies out loud, he's to have his head uncovered. He's to have his head uncovered, because he doesn't, he disgraces his head. Well, I feel like it's important to just stop right here before I get run out of the church for saying something heretical. Uh, this is past. The praying and the uh, the praying in tongues that Paul speaks of here, and the prophesying that Paul speaks of here, are foundational spiritual gifts that were given to the church for a temporary time until the completion of the canon. And once the canon was complete, once the New Testament revelation was given, these gifts were withdrawn from the church. And so, what Paul speaks of is a temporary situation. What Paul is speaking of is a very temporary situation. Before I explain that a little bit more, I want us to walk through quickly uh, Paul's defense of this thing, that he, this policy that he has given. Okay? I promise not to spend very long on this, but I want you to have uh, some sense of what he says from verse 7 through verse 16, because there's a number of things that are a little bit tricky. But basically he's given us the policy here in verses 4 through 6. If a man prays or prophesies out loud, he has to have his head uncovered. If a woman prays or prophesies out loud in the public worship service, she must have her head covered. If they don't, it's a shame on both situations. Now Paul defends that idea. Verse 7 and following. And I know he's defending the policy because of the very first word in verse 7. 4. He's connecting now what he says in the subsequent verses, the following verses, with this uh, policy here, verses 4 through 6. He's explaining why is it that a man must be uncovered when he prays or prophesies, and a woman must be covered. So, the first thing that he says here, a man ought not to have his head covered since he's the image and glory of God. So that's Paul's explanation for why a man must not cover his head. He is the image and glory of God. Basically, the best read on that is this. 
Paul doesn't explain it. Paul doesn't say very much. He just asserts it. But it seems that what Paul is saying is that the uncovered head of the man somehow radiates and gives expression to the glory of God. He says it here. He doesn't give us a lot more explanation. There's not more context. He doesn't pick it up in other places. Other apostles and other prophets don't say anything about it. But that's the best... Uh, that's the best conclusion we can draw. Somehow, some way, the uncovered head expresses God's glory. And so what Paul is saying is, you cannot cover up what is obvious, that man has been given this dominion uh, and this authority from God. But now he goes on to say, with respect to the woman, he says, but the woman is, to glory, is the glory of the man. Somehow, some way... Uh, Man bears God's glory by keeping his head uncovered. He says, on the other hand, the woman is the glory of the man. Now, these are some difficult things here that Paul is saying, and he explains what he means somewhat by that. He says, the woman is the glory of the man. He explains what he means by that in verses 8 and 9. He says, the the man does not originate from the woman, but the woman from the man. So, his first argument to support that woman is the glory of the man is this. Uh, The first woman came from man. And we know that from the story of Adam and Eve. She was formed from the rib of Adam. The next argument he gives to support his opinion, verse 9. He says, For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but the woman for the man's sake. And of course, again, it's appealing back to Genesis chapter 2. And and God created Adam. He created Eve for Adam. You know, the Word of God says to be a helpmeet, a suitable helper. So Paul looks at that passage and he derives his two supporting arguments for this position. The woman is the glory of the man. That's what he means by it. When he says that the woman is the glory of the man, he's basically just saying this, that she comes from him originally, and secondly, she has been made to be his helper. Now, Paul draws a conclusion from that in verse 10. He says, therefore, therefore, the woman ought to have the symbol of authority on her head. He says, because the woman comes from the man originally, and because she was made to be his helper originally, she is to wear this symbol of authority on her head to show that she is showing respect to the way God has created this world and structured our social existence. And he says one other thing in here that perplexes everybody who's ever read this passage from the time it was first inspired. He says the woman must wear, uh, ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now i got to tell you, there's people who've written at length about this only to show that they know nothing about what they're speaking of. All I'm going to say is this. I don't know what it means. I don't know what it means. And I feel okay about that. I don't know what Paul means, but it meant something to him. And he says, because of the angels, she's to have her head covered. Now, Paul has set up this argument so far to say, here's why a woman must cover her head. She must cover her head because she reflects the glory of man. She comes from him, and she was made to be a helper to him. Now, immediately after that, Paul qualifies himself in verses 11 and 12. hope your Bibles are open. I said this is kind of teaching here, so let's just look at this passage. I I know it is a fascinating passage if you just read it. There's a lot of things in it that, you know, it goes this way and that way. It brings up a lot of things, and it's good to just have your Bible open so you're staying with me on this. But... Paul introduces an immediate qualification here in verse 11. Just after he said that the woman is the glory of the man, then he says, However, however, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. He's saying here, by the Lord's design, that's what he means here, in the Lord. By the Lord's design and appointment and arrangement of things, here's what's happened. Yes, indeed, the very first woman did come from man. But he says, you know what happened after that? 
from in, in every other instance throughout history, man came from woman. So he's saying there is an, a mutual interdependence between men and women. What's the point of saying that? Well, the, the point is to be a corrective. The point is to say to men, don't be haughty and proud when, when you read this fact, this, what, these statements here about how you uh, somehow in, in, in your uncovered head reflect the glory of God and the woman is uh, the glory of man. He says, don't take that too far. That's basically what he's saying here. Uh, don't devalue women. Don't demean them. Don't be tyrannical towards them. Don't despise them. Don't hold them in contempt. Don't think of them as if they're inferior or lesser human beings. He says, God has set up this order. We must all accept that. Yes. But he said, that doesn't mean that somehow now uh, you are to... Uh, treat women as if they're beneath contempt. He says, don't forget the fact that you all have a mother. It's not a license for abuse. So you have the qualification. And then the third thing he brings up to expound upon this issue of women wearing a covering is propriety. Propriety, Verses 13 through 15. He says, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? And then verses 14 and 15, he says, doesn't even nature itself tell, teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him, but if a woman has long hair, it's glory. We have to work with that passage a minute. It's one that often comes up and is cited to, uh, to give authoritative... Uh, interpretations of certain positions. But here's the thing what Paul is saying. Here's the key. Verse 13, he says, proper. In other words, Paul is appealing to their sense of decorum, to their sense of what is acceptable practice. And he's assuming that their sense of what is acceptable and what is dignified and appropriate has been shaped by their culture. Charles Hodge, commenting on these verses, says this, Paul is referring to instinctive feelings or judgments, and those are determined in a great measure by education and habit. John Calvin says, he again sets forth what was at that time in common use by universal consent and custom. In other words, Paul's saying, what is it? If you look around the culture of your day, what would people sort of say is dignified and appropriate and orderly? That's what he's dealing with here. And when he gets to this business of men even having long hair, it's a cultural thing. At that particular time, both among the Greeks and the Romans for a few hundred years had a standard hairstyle, which was to have the hair cropped very short up front and above the ears and off the collar. That's just the way everyone wore their hair. But prior to that, that wasn't the practice of the Greeks or the Romans. Again, Calvin, commenting on this passage, says... It was not always reckoned a disgrace for men to have long hair. Historical records bear that in all countries in ancient times, men wore long hair. In other words, this is the point I'm getting at. Paul says, when we think about this very unusual practice of women prophesying or praying or speaking out loud in the public assemblies, It might give people the wrong impression that these Christians are just really strange, fanatical people who are interested in overturning the social order as we know it. And he's saying, what you have to do in thinking about this, he says, you're going to understand my instructions are proper that women should wear this head covering uh, by thinking about what was acceptable in culture at the time. What is dignified? What would people consider appropriate and proper? So think about that. In terms of how you understand the business of women having these coverings when they pray and they prophesy. Well, the final argument that he gives here in verse 16 for why women should cover their head when they pray and they prophesy. And I'll be short here as we move on to make some clarifications finally. 
he says in verse 16, he says, If anyone's inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor the churches of God. So what does he do? He appeals to the customs of the churches. And he says, I'll tell you why you're going to do this. Because the churches do it. Tradition says we do it. All the churches have practiced this way. And you're not going to break with the practice of the other churches. So there's this argument. What does all this mean? I already told you. I said I believe that what's happening here is a temporary thing. It's something that happened only in the apostolic era. I said it pertains to prophesying. And I said it, it pertains to praying in tongues out loud. But come to 1 Corinthians 14 as we clarify and we move to some conclusions this morning. And I realize that this is a lot of information. I realize this is a very difficult message to follow. But it's the Word of God, so we have to understand what Paul is saying, and we have to be careful with it. And what I want us to think about as we wind this down this morning is, I've given you the interpretation that Paul says if women prophesy or pray in the tongue, they have to have their head covered. And now I bring you to uh, chapter 14, verse 34, which is one of those passages which tended to speak against what I was thinking of in terms of my interpretation. Because he says there in verse 34, women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are subject themselves just as the law says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it's improper for a woman to speak in church. Now you hear that and you say, aha, Pastor Sotel, all of your interpretation is wrong and I can safely discard it. Because Paul says they're not even allowed to speak. How could it be? If Paul says they're not allowed to speak, how can it be? In chapter 11 he says, if they pray out loud in in a tongue or prophesy out loud, they have to have their head covered. He says they're not allowed to speak. Now the answer is this. Paul's not speaking in the most absolute sense possible. And I think you know that this morning. How many uh, women confess the faith this morning out loud? How many women confessed sins publicly out loud? How many women sang this morning? You see, we don't understand this in an absolute sense that women may never say a word in church. There are corporate responses where it's absolutely fitting and proper and right. So when we read this verse, we have to be careful to first of all say not in an absolute sense. But hold on now. What is he saying? Go back to verse 29. Go back to verse 29. This is the key to unlocking what's going on. Verse 29 says, Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. Paul says, When you line up in church, when it's evident the Spirit is coming upon somebody, and they are prophesying, he says, We're going to do this in an orderly fashion. Two or three of you are going to line up. Two or three of you are going to control this manifestation of the Holy Spirit in you until we can do it in order. We're going to let two or three go. And then he says, once they have given the message from God to the church for its edification, then we're going to pass judgment. Then that means, Paul says, we're going to explain it, and we are going to interpret it, and we are going to apply it. Well... He, verse 30 and 31 and 32, you see that's exactly what Paul talks about. He explains how that process is to work. He says, if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be exhorted. So this is the way we're going to do it. But then notice what the next thing is in verse 34. He says, women are to keep silent in the churches. What he is saying is that they may be the recipients of the prophecy, and they may stand up and speak it in an orderly way, but then he says they sit down and they're not allowed to pass the judgment. Because that moves now from simply being a a receptacle or a receiver of this revelation to now expounding it and explaining and applying it and teaching, and Paul says you're not permitted to do that. 
That's the key to understanding this passage. Then what the Apostle Paul is saying, yes, they may receive the prophecy, but they cannot preach the prophecy. They cannot apply the prophecy. Because God has ordained creation as He is, these structures. First Adam was created, then Eve. So woman will not teach or hold authority in church. They may receive the prophecy. They may even utter it out loud, but they're not allowed to comment on it. That would be teaching. You say, what about prayer tongues? Well, back up to verse 27. He says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or three, each in turn, and one must interpret. (laughs) See, the very same principle we just looked at in verse 29 is here again. Two or three, and someone interprets. And the same principle of 34 applies to this business of interpretation. She may pray in a tongue. She may be receiving this, this revelation from the Holy Spirit. But when it comes time to interpret it for the edification of God's people, she can't do it. She must remain silent. Because God wants the church to reflect the ordering of creation. She must not interpret. So she doesn't interpret the praying in tongues, and she does not pass judgment on the prophecies. Now, I think we can see here, as we plug that back into chapter 11, what is going on. Paul is, is, is accepting that the Holy Spirit is doing this. This manifestation of the Holy Spirit is happening in Corinth. But he says, you know what? We're still going to worship God in a way that is, uh, is obedient to Him and to His ordering of creation. And he says, if it happens that the Holy Spirit does come upon a woman in that way to impart to her divine special revelation for the edification of the saints, she is free to speak it, but... She must have a symbol of authority on her head to make it clear that she is not overstepping God's authoritative structuring of reality. And here is the thing. Because these prayer tongues passed away and prophecy passed away, guess what? Head coverings have passed away. A couple of quick applications, and the very first one I want to make is this. Head coverings are not a requirement for worship. If you want to wear a hat to church and you're a lady, you are free to. If it goes well with your outfit, that's wonderful. You are free to. But what I want to say right now, for anybody who has ever read this conscience, any, any, any woman who has ever read this passage and has a conscience about it, you don't have to have a conscience. You see, and we can envision how it happens. In reading so many of the commentators on this passage, what I, I kept coming across was this, is that these contemporary evangelicals would read this and they would say, well, it's very clear that Paul is saying that women should wear head coverings in church here. It's very clear. Very clear. If they're going to pray in church, he said, this should be a rule for us in our churches today. If they're going to pray in church, because they didn't interpret the way I did, the praying in tongues thing. They said, just a general prayer. If they're going to pray, they better have a head covering. And then one guy concluded by saying, am I really saying that women should wear head coverings in church today? And he paused and he said, no. Well, what are they supposed to wear then? This is, the, I, this is the point that makes it so difficult for people and they have a conscience about it. They say, well, what am I supposed to do? The passage seems to say I'm supposed to wear a head covering. You told me it's about head coverings. You think that we should do it then you said we don't have to. They said some appropriate symbol would work just for well, what is it? Well, the point of the passage is this. It pertained to this very special set of temporary circumstances properly interpreted, the Word of God does not require women to wear head coverings in the worship of the church. Period. You should never have a conscience about this passage again. Second of all, by conceding that Paul is talking about this very special, temporary situation of women receiving special revelation from the Holy Spirit to speak out loud for the edification of saints, but yet not interpreting or applying or expounding or proclaiming it. I am not in any way 
condoning that women take positions of leadership or teaching or instruction in worship. This concession that Paul makes for this temporary, unique set of circumstances is not the first foot in the door to overturning the clear revelation of the New Testament record that men are the only ones who are authorized by God to be ministers of the Word or to preach or teach in the worship of God's people. The interpretation that I have given you is not in any way designed to blur that unambiguous distinction that God makes. God has ordained an order in His church And for a time, he permitted it for this very special, unique set of circumstances for them to merely verbalize aloud, but to never teach. And Paul makes it unambiguously and emphatically clear, I do not allow a woman to speak. I don't allow her to teach in the churches. That has never changed, and it will never change until Jesus Christ returns in glory. What I have said this morning should not in any way be taken to diminish or undermine that. Well, that is our passage this morning, people of God. An incredibly difficult passage that must have been incredibly challenging to follow and is one that we don't normally have here, but we had to do it this way this morning. And what I hope we take away from this passage is this, is that God, as the sovereign creator the one who has sovereignly organized our experiences socially, is also the one that has all authority in the church to structure it according as he has determined. And he has done that. He has ordered it and he has shown us his will for worship and it is in his word. And what this passage teaches us is that in even such small matters as a head covering in the worship, God has all authority to command us to worship precisely as He has ordained. And if we are to know how to please Him in our worship and to glorify Him, we are going to have to do the hard work of combing over passages such as 1 Corinthians 11 in the context of the Word of God so that we are sure we understand what He wants. So that we can worship Him in a way that glorifies Him as we worship. Let's pray.